Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Sanjeev Patel. Sanjeev is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Relay Therapeutics. Relay is among a new crop of drug discovery companies driven by advances in computational chemistry. What does that mean? As I wrote a little over a year ago, quote, the basic concept is all about starting with high quality crystallography images and using them to create movies of a protein target instead of just a snapshot. With a more fluid, dynamic, and biologically realistic starting point for drug discovery, computer-aided simulations take on a whole different meaning. Relay's team looks at how those dynamic proteins behave when binding with different shapes and sizes of small molecule chemical compounds. So there you have it. Scientists at the movies. Grab your popcorn. Seriously, this is a vision that techno-optimists have touted for decades. It hasn't materialized yet. But as Relay's Sanjeev Patel told me a year ago, there was a false dawn. That's another phrase for premature hype. But in the past few years, the picture has brightened somewhat. Relay raised $400 million in a Series C deal in December of 2018. Sanjeev, a former Allergan executive who could have stayed in a high-powered big pharma job, came to this startup opportunity instead. Another computational drug discovery company, New York-based Schrodinger, has also had success in raising capital and in creating promising drug candidates with partners. It's now teed up to go public this year. For people or companies who don't yet subscribe to Timmerman Report, I'm lifting the paywall on both my December 2018 story on Relay Therapeutics and on an in-depth January 2019 interview that I did with Schrodinger CEO Rami Farid. These articles are examples of what TR subscribers get, in-depth coverage of scientific trends that puts you ahead of the curve. These articles will help support your understanding of the dynamics I discuss in today's show with Sanjeev. And after reading, I hope you'll consider purchasing a subscription to get more of this kind of exclusive in-depth biotech coverage throughout the year. Now, before we start the episode, I'd like to tell you about the sponsor of The Long Run Podcast. Precision Nanosystems is lowering the barriers to developing gene and advanced therapies. Precision Nanosystems is a global leader in technology and solutions for developing RNA, DNA, CRISPR, and small molecule drugs, rapidly taking ideas to patients. In working with over 100 biopharmaceutical companies globally, Precision Nanosystems' expertise and proprietary technology is at the heart of many of the leading gene therapies under development today. Precision Nanosystems' nanomedicine development and manufacturing platform and reagents provide outstanding reducibility, versatility, and scalability with an intuitive workflow that requires no prior expertise. Precision Nanosystems can partner with you to bring your programs to patients successfully. To learn more about Precision Nanosystems, please visit precisionnanosystems.com. Now, please join me and Sanjeev Patel on the long run. Welcome, Sanjeev Patel, to the long run. Thanks, Luke. Looking forward to it. So Sanjeev, as a listener of this show, you know that I like to set some contextual framework about the person first before we get into what it is that you're doing now that's of interest at Relay Therapeutics to the wider biopharma community. So just we'll start this off really simple. Where are you from? Uh, I grew up in the north of England in County Durham, which is a beautiful kind of 
rural area and spent most of my childhood being educated in a town called Newcastle, which is an industrial town about as far away in the in England as you can get from London. Um, area was you know idyllic, um, but it was you know a big part of the industrial revolution and by the late 70s early 80s was in some decline um but that's where i grew up in the north of england and what did your parents do for a living um my parents were immigrants and so they um had grown up in india um my father grew up on a small farm um in rural gujarat and uh, my grandmother raised uh, two cattle in our front yard, and my father was one of the first people in his town to go to college and became uh, a doctor. And so at the time, um, for a better life, he immigrated to Uganda. And so him and my mother, very early in their kind of lives, went to live in East Africa. Um, and I think they were going to be there forever. And Unfortunately, they came across a very early Idi Amin, who was um, to become a very notorious dictator. And yeah. they saw firsthand, you know, what, what some of the atrocities uh, that were being committed, especially uh, in the area that they were. And so they left uh, Uganda just before the expulsion of the Indians um, and moved to the north of England. And... Um, my father became a family practitioner uh, in a mining village um, in County Durham. Now, was this some kind of program in the UK where they, you know, they needed more physicians in rural areas? And was he filling some kind of need there? I think that's exactly it. The NHS at the time was uh, severely short of uh, medics um, and in particular uh, family practitioners. And so um, he applied and took this job in the north of England. Uh, he obviously had no kind of, um, kind of understanding of the, you know, the different pieces of the geography uh, and ended up in this mining town. Okay, so, so what year would this have been? This was in the mid 1970s, early 1970s. Okay, now were you, uh, were you born yet? Yep, I was just um, born as they came in to to the area, um, and the town was it was a very small town. It was there was a mine which was just about to close down, um, and then it was just like a church, a grocer, um, and the doctor's surgery and a pub. Of course, every town in that <laughs> area had a pub. Of course. The doctors that were running the surgery had been there since the Second World War, and they were looking. Uh, to retire, and so my father was was kind of the new young doctor that would take things over. Um, but the surgery was in the house of the doctor, and so um, you know they were more community workers than they were in the end practicing you know medicine as we know it today. And it was, um, I mean, it was a fantastic kind of upbringing in this environment. And so, did you have any uh, any siblings? I have one older sister, um, and so the two of us um, were, were brought up in this town, um, and uh, we were clearly the only immigrants in the town to start with. There were more over time, 
Um, and we kind of lived this kind of double life almost. On one side, we were enjoying this wonderful kind of alien culture to us. Um, you know, enjoying football, soccer uh, as a religion in the area, uh, the food. Uh, my father was kind of involved in all kinds of community activities, like judging the you know the village fate and you know the veg you know vegetables how. Um, um, but on the other side, you know, they were obviously immigrants and they missed home, and so we would spend weekends and evenings. Uh, trying to scour out other families that had come from the Indian subcontinent and spend as much time as possible with them as they they missed home. Now, I see it now, you know, being a, an English person that's moved to the U.S., if I hear an English accent uh, on Charles Street in Boston, you know, I'll, I'll go up to the person and say, hey, where are you from? And, you know, even though there's <laughs> 60 million people in the U.K., I expect, that, you know, somehow I connected to them in some way. And I read the BBC News every day. Um, and there, there are quite a few, there are quite a few British accents that you can hear around Cambridge and Boston. <laughs> okay. So, so what kind of, what kind of, um, schooling did, were you exposed to, um, early on or, or moving into high school? Um, was this a small, like local public school or did you go off somewhere? Uh, so initially we were in the kind of local small public schools in and around the village that we, that we lived in. Uh, but then for high school, we went uh, to school in the local towns, um, you know, traveled every day 30 miles into the, the local city, uh, Newcastle, um, and, you know, it was a much more diverse catchment area and um, really enjoyed school. Um, the, you know, the obvious career pathway for me, having grown up in this family of um where my father was a doctor, was to be a, a medic. And so never really thought about doing anything else. Um, you know, as we kind of came to the end of high school, I did economics for the first time and was totally hooked by it and loved it. When you say medic, you, you mean a physician, uh, a surgeon, not, not, you know, like someone who goes in the military and treats battle wounds. That's like the, the term that we use here in the U.S. <laughs> no, no, that's exactly right. I mean, when I, when I, my whole experience of medicine was really just watching my father. Uh, and so, um, you know, I was, so he expected, he, th th this was an expectation in the household that you would, um, you know, Classic immigrant story, like study hard, apply yourself, uh, become a, a physician, a respectable, uh, noble calling. Yes. I mean, it was never said, but I think it was always expected that one of us kids was going to become a doctor. Um, and uh, so I went to medical school um, and so moved uh, south and went to Cambridge um, and... It was a very traditional course. Uh, you know, we didn't speak or learn about patients for the first three years. We, it was entirely kind of basic science in these wonderful ancient buildings in the kind of very traditional uh, structure. Um, and, you know, it took a year out in that course to do research. I did a year of neuroscience research. And it was then I realized, you know, kind of a few months into it, that this was not going to be for me. Uh, we had to do some um, bench work where we had to grow neurons and I could never get my neurons to grow. 
Um, and when they did grow, they ended up getting infected. And so uh, at the end of the term, you know, the, the person that I was working for said, look, I think you may want to stick to clinical medicine. So that kind of was the end of my research career even before it had begun. Um, and so second half of the course, I went to further south to London and became a clinical medical student. And uh, every attachment I did, I, I was convinced that that's what I was going to be. So whether it was, you know, obstetrics or, uh, you know, general medicine. Um, and one of the rotations, I ended up coming out to the U.S. to Baltimore, to the Johns Hopkins, to do trauma surgery. And I'd never really seen trauma in central London. Um, I mean, there were rumors of, you know, um, you know, severe trauma uh, out in the U.S., and that's that's where you would go to see it. Uh, the first evening in East Baltimore, I can remember coming in and seeing, like, back after back gunshot wounds. Um, and so for someone that, you know, from the U.K. That's, that's never seen one, it was totally eye-opening to see these surgeons, you know, patch back together these poor, unfortunate people coming in in a steady stream. And so I was hooked, you know, I really thought after that, that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, it also taught me not to go out late at night in East Baltimore. And so... <laughs> I guess you're not one of those people afraid of the sight of blood. <laughs> no, not, not after that experience. And so, so I came back um, and finished my training and became a junior surgeon. Um, and so the first um, thing I did was I spent a year teaching anatomy. Um, and so I did this at King's College in London, just off the Strand, it's a beautiful location. And we'd go off the Strand, up a few floors, and a colleague and I would spend a year almost dissecting these 30 bodies. You know, we kind of got to know them over the course of the year. They, you know, these people had donated their bodies to medical science. And our job was to dissect them all. Uh, it was pretty painstaking work, and we'd do different pieces of the anatomy each week. And then we'd do that in the mornings, and in the afternoons we'd teach medical students. Um, and it was a wonderful way of learning you know, human anatomy and setting the foundation for a career in surgery. Um, and so after that year, I started all of the kind of basic surgical rotations and, you know, started to think that, you know, this is what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Um, the NHS was something I, I really enjoyed working in. I mean, it's this huge organization, um, lots of different pieces of it. I mean, it's, it's massive at that time. It was probably the, one of the largest employers in the world. Uh, and this was before all of the kind of reforms in junior doctor's hours. And so we would, you know, work a lot. So we'd kind of go in on a Saturday morning and work right through to Monday night. And you would rarely get any rest or sleep inside of that. Um, and I could see my career was planned out in front of me. I, you know, I'd become an attending and then I would, you know, work in a teaching hospital and, you know, I could see it all mapped out in front of me. I just got married at the time and my wife was a dentist and, um, it started to, as we went through this next few years, start to think, do I really want to have it all mapped out as perfectly as it is in front of me? 
Well, at that point, there's such a big investment. Like you and the NHS have really invested a lot in becoming this kind of person. And then you, your experience accrues and accrues. Eventually, I mean, you just keep getting better and better. Like surgery takes a lot of practice, right? At least for... Um, so you're, um, how, how did you decide, uh, how did you end up, um, having some, some doubts or some other thoughts of what you might do with this training? Yeah. I mean, at this point I was 10 years into, to it. So I, you know, I was at medical school and then I'd been practicing. Uh, there were two things. One was this kind of constant itch around, you know, do I really want to have this laid out? in the way it is for the next 30 or 40 years. The other side was I started to wonder if this machine I was working in was as effective and as efficient as it could be. Uh, and that started becoming more and more of how I saw the job. I was like, I wonder if we could do this better. Um, and there was never really an impetus for this system to try and make itself more efficient or effective. It was just It's just the way it was. That's how we did it. Um, and, but it became more and more of, you know, how I saw things. And I, and I thought trying to kind of battle the system bottom up, you know, a small part in this giant cog, uh, wouldn't it be better to try it the other way around and somehow try and affect this system, uh, top down. What would be an example of the, of the kind of inefficiency that you saw and that, that you thought, you know, you could be improved upon? I mean, it was just, you know, I was right in the kind of cold face of this system. And so, for example, we'd sit in the operating theater waiting for patients to come. And the there were not enough or porters in the hospital to go and deliver the patients. And so the machine would block up. We would be sitting in the operating theater waiting for the patients. The system hadn't got enough people to transport the patients. The patients would sit on the ward waiting. Um, and then, you know, we'd use up the operating time and we would not be able to operate on all the patients we wanted to operate on. So it was very simple oh. kind of process management, if you think about it. Uh, and I was thinking, if I'm seeing this right at one end, I wonder what else is going on in this giant system. That's not my picture of how a surgeon works in the U.S. I mean, I, I see them kind of like flitting from one room to the next, constantly staying busy. <laughs> exactly. Oh. And so for me, I mean, I love the NHS and, and you know, the service that it offers uh, I, I still believe it is second to none. And I wanted to try and do something about it, but I just didn't know how to go about it at that time. And so, so I remember talking to my wife, we were just about to have our first child saying, Hey, I, I want to do something different. And, you know, I was really worried because obviously I was 10 years into this career now and, um, you know, we were just about to have our first child and, I, like, I really want to do something different. She said, well, what is it you want to do? I said, I don't know. Uh, but I know it's something that is going to take me in a different direction. And I want to somehow learn some skills of how I could influence and impact this system. And so she said, you should absolutely do it. Uh, the challenge for me at the time is I just didn't know what, what and how I could go about it. There probably weren't a lot of other peers uh, of yours in that on that training track who, you know, were going off to become management consultants or, or something like that. That's absolutely right. I mean, I looked around and I, I couldn't, you know, this was just around the time of, you know, Google coming out. And I'm, I try to figure out, like, were, did these people exist anywhere? And there were a handful of folks out there that had 
left the profession. Um, but the first thing I did is went to talk to some of the senior folks I was working with, and they, they said, look, you're crazy. If you were to do this, you would never be able to come back to the medical profession. I mean, it would not be seen as a positive. And so, so I was really worried. I was young. I was thinking, well, you know, what if I do this and it doesn't work out? You know, I'm basically, you know, unemployable. Wait, when you say do this, are, are you thinking of like what you ended up doing? You went to BCG for consulting. And, and so how did, that, how did that come on your radar screen as a possibility? So I had a friend um, back from university that had uh, gone into management consulting. And as I was going through this journey, I kind of was talking to lots of people I, I knew. And they said, hey, this is a great job. Like you go and you learn lots of different skills. Um, you clearly don't have any kind of business or commercial knowledge. And you'll see lots of different companies. Why don't you think about doing it? And so I thought, well, this is... Uh, something I know nothing about, uh, but it does seem kind of like the direction I want to go. And if I want to come back and influence this healthcare system, that's exactly the kind of thing that I want to experience and learn. And so, so you know, at the time, you wrote this handwritten letter and my resume, which was, you know, all about how many operations I'd done and, and sent it off. Um, and about you know, a month later, I got this response in the mail that said, you know, thank you, Dr. Patel, for your application, but we, you know, we uh, have a lot of applications and you know, we won't be able to interview you, but you know, good luck with your career. Uh, and so for about a week, I thought, well, you know, I thought about it and you know, it was probably worth thinking about and I'll just go back to to the career pathway that I thought I was going to go down. And then about two days later, I got a letter back from BCG saying, totally different person, saying, hey, Dr. I would love to have you for an interview. And so never got to the bottom of what, what was going on inside of BCG's recruitment department. But <laughs> maybe the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. <laughs> never really wanted to ask. But anyway, I went for the interview a few weeks later. Um, and they, you know, they have this kind of long convoluted interview process, but at the end of it, uh, they offered me a job. And, um, a couple of months later, I went from, you know, one day operating and looking after a ward full of patients to being in this, you know, really beautiful office in central London. Okay, so this is that this is that big fork in the road, big life decision. Uh, you know, colleagues probably are like, you know, like you said, uh, are you are you nuts? Uh, family, I mean, I, I don't know. What did your dad say? He said, you know, he, and he he said, look, do you do you think you really want to do this? Uh, I said, look, I I really think I thought about it. I really want to do this, and you know, like all parents, he's like, look, are you sure you can pay the mortgage? That was his primary concern at the time. Uh, I said, look, I think so. My wife was at the time a dentist and I think, you know, we were uh, pretty stable on her income. And I think, look, I said, look, I think I can take the risk. Um, and he said, look, it's, it's risky. I've never heard of, of the Boston Consulting Group. Like, is it a really a thing? I said, I'm pretty sure it's a thing and I, um, uh, I want to do it. Uh, my mother, on the other hand, is like never really got over it. I'm pretty sure she still tells her friends that I'm a medical student or a doctor. <laughs> and I remember she asked me, like, what, what do you do in this job? I said, well, you know, we go to companies and we figure out problems and then we solve them. 
It's like, well, it's like being a doctor. I said, yes, it's like being a doctor. Um, and so, so, I mean, it was definitely better coffee when I got to BCG. It was uh, October of 2001. And so 9-11 had just happened. And we, uh, as a cohort, had got there. There were a, a whole bunch of Stanford and Harvard MBAs. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of medics. Um, and it was clearly an experiment that BCG was trying at that time uh, to see, you know, could they bring in more diverse uh, recruits and to see what, how they would do. And then I have to give them a lot of credit for being patient with us. Um, I mean, I got there the first day and I didn't know which icon PowerPoint was. Um, and the manager asked me to make some slides. I said, like, which, which one is it? Which color is it? Uh, and so I could see that they were like, oh, this is going to be a, a lot of work. <laughs> and, you know, making I, slides is very important. <laughs> it is, is. And I can remember using a calculator to add up numbers and somebody coming over saying, you know, you can use Excel for that. I, mean, I have no idea what Excel is. And so they were very patient with, with us over the coming years. But obviously, as a doctor, you know, you've got some aptitude and you've got some tenacity, the ability to get through that training. That's part of what they're looking for, like basically good athletes that they can get on board and uh, and train. And so you get thrown in here on the deep end of the pool and you're working with lots of imagine different kind of healthcare clients, learning different aspects of the business. Was this all concentrated in and around the UK or did you get like global experience around healthcare? We did a whole range of different work from healthcare systems, as I had hoped, to um, medical trade unions, to pharmaceutical companies. Um, and up to this point, you know, I'd always taken, you know, public transport or driven to work to the same place every day. And, you know, I'm sure that's what 99% of people do every day. But this, this was the first time, like, we would go to different cities, different countries every week. Um, and so for gain, it was totally new to me. We would travel all over. Uh, we were out in the US and in all kinds of different towns as we worked for some of these big pharma clients. Uh, and so I learned a lot. I learned a lot around, and it was very similar to medicine in many ways. We asked questions, we took a history, we made uh, different investigations or analyses. Uh, we'd come up with a treatment plan and then, then we'd watch it um, and see what happened. Uh, but the, the most important thing for me was just learning how to structure thinking. You know, there was never a situation that we would get into that we couldn't structure our way out of. Uh, it was mainly healthcare work, but I can remember being sent off to a French exhaust manufacturer and sitting down with these, you know, very skeptical French mechanics and helping them figure out why, how to sell more exhausts. Um, and so that, that has never gone away from and has been, you know, invaluable. You have to develop a certain kind of, I guess, mental agility. Um, you're not just building on, you know, one brick in the wall, like maybe, um, you know, other kinds of fields. There, there's a, there's a versatility. Okay. So you do this for something like, something like four years. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So I did an MBA right at the end of it. I went to, uh, to France uh, and that was really driven by, you know, people just kept asking me, hey, how do you know anything about business and the commercial world? Like you're a medic or a, a doctor. And so eventually I just said, okay, you know, maybe there's something in this MBA that I can't see. So I, I did one. Um, and the most important thing that's ever happened is that no one's ever asked me since 
whether or how I know anything about the commercial world. Um, and so once I did the MBA and came back, it was clear then I really wanted to, to do something. And when I say do something, I really wanted to build or own something. And, you know, we would spend a lot of time with clients helping them build their businesses. And I thought, right, I really want to do this. Um, but this kind of startup culture was not really a thing in, in London at the time. And so I'd been to a lot of the big pharma companies to interview and they, you know, they had all these great rotations. Um, but it, it still just didn't feel right. And then I came across a, a West coast based pharma company uh, Allegan that was starting to expand its presence outside of the U.S. It was based in Orange County in California, and they had an international headquarters in just uh, next to Heathrow in London. Um, and they had been talking to me about coming to work there. They were an eye care company predominantly at that time with some neurosciences, uh, but they had this product, Botox, and they were building a aesthetic medicine franchise and Botox cosmetic was about to become a thing outside the U S and they wanted someone to come and work in this kind of fledgling business and run small sales and marketing teams across Europe. And the thing that really attracted me was, you know, I could get to actually run something. And so the head of international is a guy called David Endicott, who's now CEO of Alcon. And he said, look, you've never had a real job. I said, no, I've been a doctor and I was a management consultant and, you know, I've worked for almost, you know, 15 years. Of course, I've had a real job. He said, no, you've never built or owned anything. Uh, and so come and do this job. A real job with accountability and profit and loss responsibility. Like, you know, you make these decisions and you either succeed or, or people lose their jobs. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so, like, I was kind of in my early 30s. I was... Um, you know, spent the last four or five years at BCG working with, you know, very high up executives, you know, divisional vice presidents or CEOs. And all of a sudden I was in this job where I was managing, you know, two or three sales reps in each European country, spending most days in the field, talking to customers. Um, and it was all driven by the CEO of Allegan's Al very kind of uh, tenured uh, gentleman, David Pyatt, just made it all very simple for us. It's just understand what customers want and make it for them and sell it to them. And that's what the job was. And like I was in a rush in my career. I wanted to, you know, um, be in the same room as the executive team and the CEO because that's what I was used to. And and the advice given at the time was, was not accepted by me very well at the time, it was, it was the right advice, which is, look, you need to learn how to build, learn how to own, learn how to be accountable for your decisions and, and know how to manage people. Because in the end, that's all what that, that matters in building a business. And so for almost the next four or five years, that's what I did. I ran progressively, you know, larger sales and marketing teams, but they were still small. You know, the most, there were 10 people in the country, um, and spend time out in kind of southern Italy talking to customers about payment terms or, you know, we'd be out in Spain trying to understand the reimbursement system or what, 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 how to deal with NICE. 
but it was really at the kind of coal face of of the business and um eventually i stopped uh arguing with folks and just bought into it and loved it because each year we'd make decisions and the next year we'd see what happened um and you either made great decisions and they worked or you didn't and i did both essentially you had to work work your way up and, and climb the ladder you, you weren't just gonna you know walk straight into the boardroom and and give presentations that's right. I mean, for almost four or five years, I never met the CEO of Algan. It was just a thing that you'd see on the website. Um, and so, so that changed. We, we got uh, a new boss in the international business, a guy called Doug Ingram, came out from corporate. Uh, he you know, is a great mentor of mine now. He is now the CEO of Sarepta. It's on the board of Relay. And he came out as the new head of international. He had a reputation for not worrying about experience and just looking for potential. And so, so about two or three weeks after he came to the region, he called me into his office and said, hey, we want you to do this, this amazing new job. I'm like, well, what is it? So we want you to run the emerging markets, you know, for all of uh, Allegan's businesses, you, you know, hold, hold P&L for all, all of these different countries, Middle East, uh, Africa, Russia. Uh, Allegan doesn't have a great business in any of these places and we want you to build it. Um, I said, no, I don't want to do this. Um, like I know how this works. I, I need to go to the U S next and run a U.S. business. Cause that's the way that, you know, the traditional pathway works for a, an executive. Um, and so he said, no, you're absolutely crazy. You should do this job. And after some back and forth, I, I agreed and he was right. Um, and he was right for lots of different reasons. I mean, the first was it allowed me to really to build entities from scratch. Allegan had very little presence in any of these countries. And so as the first employee of Allegan in Russia, you know, built um, and bought back businesses all over, the, all over these different geographies. And so I saw firsthand what it was like to build something from scratch. And we were really alone. Like we were out there on our own in, in some of these geographies, South Africa, you know, Turkey, Poland, Ukraine. You know, the, these were countries that Algon had not a presence in. Um, and it was just basic things like, you know, car parking. You know, how do you get car parking in Moscow? Uh, how do you trans- transfer products across the 13 time zones of Russia? And so it was really great, interesting work. Well, I guess being a kid born in Idi Amin's Uganda, I mean, you weren't really afraid of this. <laughs> so, so that was great, just learning how to do that. The second thing was just the, the, the business. Like, you know, there were just very vibrant economies for us to, to work in. And so there was no surprise that the, these were very successful pieces of Allegan that we built. Precision Nanosystems is lowering the barriers to developing gene and advanced therapies. Precision Nanosystems is a global leader in technology and solutions for developing RNA, DNA, CRISPR, and small molecule drugs, rapidly taking ideas to patients. In working with over 100 biopharmaceutical companies globally, Precision Nanosystems' expertise in proprietary technology is at the heart of many of the leading gene therapies under development today. Precision Nanosystems nanomedicine development and manufacturing platform and reagents provide outstanding reducibility, versatility, and scalability with an intuitive workflow that requires no prior expertise. 
Precision Nanosystems can partner with you to bring your programs to patients successfully. To learn more about Precision Nanosystems, please visit precisionnanosystems.com. I'm beginning to see a pattern here in your life, like with kind of first principles thinking. Very simple, from the ground up. How do you build? Yeah, and then the final thing is just, it was just really interesting culturally. I mean, so some of these places, you know, growing up watching, you know, in the Cold War, you'd see, you know, Russia was portrayed as a, as a certain kind of um, enemy. And now just going to work with Russia and Russians, they're just normal people. And same in South Africa, you know, growing up in watching the apartheid uh, regime and then going to South Africa and building a business and understanding, you know, what, what really is the importance of diversity as you build a team. And so those learnings have not, not gone away. And so I loved, I loved doing that. And um, Doug Ingram went back to uh, California to be Allegan's president. And I went back a couple of months after and moved my family out to Orange County in California to run global marketing. Now, this would have been your first time, first time living in the U.S.? First time living in the U.S., first time in the corporate headquarters. And so I'd spent the previous, you know, almost 10 years uh, almost battling against corporate, uh, being in all these disparate parts. And I, I always thought, when I get to corporate, I'm going to make them see, like, what it is on the other side of some of these choices. And so, so I find myself in charge of Allegan's portfolio. Um, making decisions from Orange County around, you know, what was good for Japan or what was good for China uh, and never lost the perspective of what it was like being on the other end of these things. Um, and was really excited about settling down and spending the rest of my career at Allegan. I mean, I'd already been there 10 years. The company was very stable. We'd grown year on year. Uh, David Pyatt had been the CEO for 17 years. It was going to be a nice transition to Doug Ingram. And, you know, we were going to be there forever. And so that changed uh, one afternoon. Um, the stock started to rise one afternoon. And it had been in the doldrums for a while. We, we, we didn't understand why. And I remember looking at my phone thinking, wow, that's great. Finally, the market has realized what, why we've been underappreciated. And this is long coming. Uh, and then I started to see all of these text messages and emails saying, get back uh, upstairs. Uh, we all need to meet. And it was the start of a hostile takeover. This was valiant. Now, so Sanjeev, now this, we could probably spend our whole show talking about some of these battles that happen with Valiant and, and, uh, there were, there were other deals that actually did get done. Like, you know, you successfully fended off the Valiant deal, um, which in hindsight looks like a masterstroke. Um, the, the merger then happened with Allergan and activists and you would have been intimately involved in the, uh, with that one. You know, I guess the, the old faded, uh, Pfizer combination, you're dealing at like the highest levels of corporate strategy now, dealing with the CEO and the board, and um, but in a kind of a, a behind the scenes role. Like you're on strategy. You're not you're not facing the you know going on CNBC or anything like that. Um, but but what 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 did you gain from all of those that that kind of I guess like pressure packed four or five year stretch? I mean, it, it never worked as hard over that period as I've ever ever done. 
Um, and you're absolutely right, David Pyatt or Doug Ingram or Brent Saunders was really kind of out front in the public eye. Um, but work needs to get done. As you know, as you restructure a company or you try to integrate, um, all of this is complicated work that just needs to get structured and executed on time flawlessly. And so that's, that's what I tried to uh, focus on over that time period. Uh, what, what helped me was this ability to think back to what's it like at the other end of this. So, you know, having been in some of these disparate geographies, knowing, you know, what corporate decisions get sent down and how they're received uh, was very useful when you're at the other end of it. How you, you know, the most important thing is just simplify things um, and make as many decisions as you can as far away from the center as, as possible. Um, but at the end of it, I always wanted to be part of all of these things and be the center of a, you know, large company. And, you know, had worked almost 10 years to get there. And when I got there, I realized that that's not what I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed being out in the, in the periphery, um, building things, not looking at old charts of, you know, tens of thousands of people, but actually knowing the individuals by name. And so it became really apparent to me as we kind of went through some of these transactions that I wanted to go back and build something from scratch. Okay. Now, how old are you at this point? I think by the time I left Allegan, I was 43. And so, you know, I had, I had looked at folks leaving Big Pharma to go to small companies and they were more towards the end of their careers. They'd made, you know, their name and in a big company. And, you know, this was a kind of final kind of last job before retirement. So for me, it was a, it was a very different proposition. This is really, you know, the, the highest kind of point of my career now for this next 10 years. Um, and it was not an obvious choice again. So, you know, talked to my wife again about this, said, look, you know, I think I want to do this. And like she has always done, she said, yes, you should definitely do that. Um, that was the easy part. The hard part was finding um, uh, other people that believed that this was a good idea. Now, when you say this, you, you mean like leaving to, to go find a, a startup to, to work at? Yeah, so... So both ways, you know, talking to people inside the company, it was like, look, why would you do this? You know, you could definitely just stay doing this kind of work for the next 10 or 15 years. And, you know, you're pretty experienced at it. You know what you're doing. Uh, there's plenty that you could have an impact. And just the size of the impact of working in an organization, like Allegan at the time was 33,000 people. And so, you know, it's a giant portfolio. You could have a lot of impact. Um, but on the flip side of it, you know, starting to talk to small companies, VCs, you know, it wasn't obvious. They're like, look, you're a commercial person, strategy person from a big company. What, what relevance are you going to have running an early stage research company? Usually this is a role for a scientist. That's right. Yeah. I met a wonderful um, recruitment person, Steve Israel, who just kept saying, look, you're going to find something. It's like, you know, any kind of matchmaking. You just have to kiss a lot of frogs and you'll find the perfect match for you. Um, and so it wasn't in a rush at Allegan. So over the kind of 18 month period, I saw a lot of different opportunities. Um, and I remember one Friday afternoon coming up to Boston and I met Alexis Borossi, who was then at Third Rock. And then Mark Merkos, one of the founders of Relay, one of the earliest employees at 
vertex and you know within about 15 minutes of meeting them i knew that this was what i wanted to do um and you know it's a tough choice for them because i wasn't part of the boston ecosystem you know i think you know one of your journalists colleagues talks about the the families in boston whether that's you know families of vcs or families of you know, some of the, the kind of foundational companies, Vertex, Biogen, Genzyme, or, you know, some of the, the families of academic institutions. I just wasn't in any of the, the normal pools of talent that they traditionally had got CEOs from. Relationships are very, very important. Trusting relationships. Exactly. And so, you know, I was from the West Coast, kind of this kind of brash um, medical aesthetic company, uh, so it was not an obvious choice um, for them to make. What about Relay really appealed to you, though? Why, why did you know within 15 minutes that this was something exciting that you wanted to take, uh, take by the horns? I mean, in, in that time period, all you can get is the people. And like I met the uh, small team. There were about 20 people in the company at the time. And they were all kind of laser focused on getting the job done. They were, they were clear that they were going to change the way that medicines were discovered. Um, and just, you know, the passion that they all exuded. And I, I at that time, didn't really fully kind of understand the science. And, you know, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, in a minute. But I knew that, you know, if this doesn't work, they were going to find another way to change the way medicines were discovered. And so that's all I needed to see. It was just, you know, having worked with this kind of, earlier part of my career, I realized that it's all about people at the end of the day, nothing else. Uh, so that was the, now subsequently, the, the, the three other things. You know, the first thing is just the mission. Um, the goal of the company is to drug or make medicines for these intractable uh, targets. You know, the industry has declared certain targets undruggable. And they're undruggable because the traditional approaches to making small molecules have not worked. But that doesn't mean that that's how it stays forever. And so the ability to find small molecule drugs, medicines, pills to drug some of these targets was really attractive. I mean, nature gives us now all we need to know. It, it, all the sequencing data identifies the targets that are driving um, any diseases, we just can't drug them. Um, and then the second and third is just the way that, that they were approaching at the time. There are these two unstoppable forces. One is this increasing experimental resolution that's now available to us to understand proteins. You know, we've had a very limited understanding of the proteins we're trying to drug. We see them as these kind of fragments in static images and, you know, it's no surprise that some proteins have been termed undruggable. We see them like, you know, bowling balls, kind of I can't really understand where or how to fit a small molecule. Now, over the last couple of uh, years, we see these techniques come online experimentally that allow us to intimately understand the dynamic nature of proteins. Proteins don't exist as static fragments. They exist like transformers in these chains, multiple domains, constantly moving. And that motion uh, carries with it a lot of information and unlocks a lot of the secrets that we've never been able to see before. 
Now, this is what's interesting, Sanjiv, because I think, you know, you talk to any biologist and they would agree with what you've just said. Proteins are not static, they're dynamic. We've known this forever, but um, our ability to look at proteins has been limited. We've taken these static images, like, um, you know, crystallography images. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, the analogy that I've, I've tried out and... Um, with, uh, with Praveen Tipperneni at Morphic Therapeutic, who I think you know, uh, another computational drug discovery company, is it's sort of like, you know, imagine like you're still photographer at a football game taking a picture of Tom Brady throwing the football. And, you know, usually like he's got the ball at the top, you know, above his head and he's got his eyes on the receiver and you just have that one picture. But that, like, that kind of, uh, is emblematic of what he's about to do, but you don't, you can't, you can't understand how he throws the ball unless you see the whole motion. And that's kind of what we're getting now with structural biology, taking multiple, multiple images, piecing them together, kind of like a movie and seeing like the whole follow through. Maybe the protein, uh, you know, comes across in a different shape at one point or another and presents a new vulnerability, a new opportunity for chemical uh, matter to bind with. This is like the, <laughs> that, that's the thing that uh, the concept basically that, that I've heard from a couple different companies like yours uh, and, and opens up a whole lot of possibilities, right? That's exactly it. I mean, taking these kind of grainy black and white images and now having high definition, you know, movies from multiple angles, it just gives you all this information that you've never had before. And so, so it's no surprise that it gives you information that you can use to now try and take some of these undruggable proteins and make them druggable. And it, it you know, that was the premise, which is, could you take all of this experimental data and then the second half of, of what excited me about coming to Relay was the computational power that's now available to us. And so there's been lots of discussion over the last few decades around, you know, can computation help us in discovering new medicines? And you know, there's been many dawns of this. But it's very clear that if you, you buy into the fact that the computational power is getting more and more powerful and it's getting lower and lower cost. And so our ability to simulate biological systems virtually has to be getting better over time. And our ability at Relay to build these simulations using all of the rich experimental data that we've got, and then to use those virtual systems to more efficiently find medicines. But you could only do it if you have this combination of all of this rich experimental data and then combine it with the computational power that's now available to us. So I think everybody knows that we, we've got a lot more computational power. The, the, the speed, the, the capacity is there from that side. We're getting more and more uh, images that can be analyzed in a, like a very high throughput way. Um, so like there's, there's underlying ingredients here to do something. You referenced the, um, the many dawns. I mean, there was a, I think you called it when we spoke a year ago, uh, a false dawn, or there may have been a couple where things got overhyped and, and that tends to depress or dampen an entire sector in this case, computational drug discovery. So that, um, what, what kind of got you over that hump when you were looking at relay made you think, okay, uh, now now is actually the time when um, you, you can build something. I think there were two things. One is, you know, the power is is 
is useful, but you, it's not useful in isolation. You actually need all of this kind of rich experimental data that we've just talked about to form the basis of any of these simulations. And we've just never had that before. And then the second piece is some of the early work that I saw was clear that using the simulations that we can now create, um, you could actually now come up with hypotheses that you could test in the lab and start to validate. And so this wasn't just hype. We were actually seeing uh, real feedback loops and they get more and more powerful. The more simulations that you do and the predictions you make, and if you get that data, both positive and negative, um, they, they start to form a virtuous circle. So it was those two things. Um, but the computational power, we're right at the beginning of this, of this field. And, you know, we will see lots of advances as we go forward. But it's very clear that this combination of experimentation and computation will be the core of the future of how, you know, many small molecule drug discovery companies work. Okay, now at the time you had this conversation with Alexis and Mark Mirko, a company, I guess, had been around for maybe a year and had 20 or so people. You got some structural biology, some some computation people, some medicinal chemistry, like the (laughs) core blocks, I guess. Uh, But uh, they needed someone to come in uh, and and build, like, what, what was the idea here for a company like to to do this the right way you needed to create some kind of new processes and new workflow to get multiple disciplines working together uh to kind of go about drug discovery from a a different way or a slightly you know non-traditional way is that was that the task in front of you that's right i mean you know both sides of this were were emerging you know how do you uh understand all of this data that's now available to us on the experimental side. And then how do you use that to build these simulations? And, you know, how long should you simulate for? What kinds of computational tools should we use? Because there's, you know, a whole kind of um, renaissance of these tools being created by different uh, collaborators that we work with. And so the the job is exactly that, which is how do you sift through all of this and uh, produce uh, something at the end of it? And so, so I don't think we tried to overcomplicate it. The, we chose a small number of precision medicine programs. Alexis had just come from, you know, founding Foundation Medicine and uh, Blueprint Medicines. And so we focused on a small number of precision oncology targets. Um, and the goal was to try and create first-in-class medicines or best-in-class medicines as rapidly and as efficiently as we could to validate the approach. Um, and uh, we learned, uh, learned as we go along. And for the first few programs, we threw the kitchen sink at them. We, we tried every single kind of experimental technique we had get our hands on. We tried every computational approach we could find. Uh, and we just learned what worked and what didn't. Um, and it was clear kind of 18 months in that we were seeing uh, insights from the approach that we just couldn't see using traditional approaches. And we were getting ourselves closer and closer to development candidates for uh, these first few programs. Um, and so then we had a fork in the road, which is what do we do now with this company? Do we do you know, the traditional approach of trying to get one or two things in the clinic, get 
proof of concept data as quick as possible, shut down research um, and focus all our spending on clinical. And then at some point in the future, you know, try and monetize this either through an acquisition or a partnership. Or do we really believe that we have a totally novel approach and do we scale our research engine um, aggressively, uh, even before we put something in the clinic? Um, and we had long debates and discussions about this internally. And we came to the conclusion that we really believe that we wanted to try and get as many medicines to patients as we possibly could by scaling the research platform. And so that's uh, what we've been doing over this last 12 months. And uh, a year ago, uh, raised a whole lot of capital, $400 million in a Series C. Uh, that's a lot more than most companies are going to raise privately, um, which, you know, comes with its pros and cons, right? I mean, it's great to be able to, you know, uh, build up a platform and then prosecute lots of different programs within it. Um, but it also, you know, comes with a lot of pressure. <laughs> uh, there's, you know, you got to develop, deliver a massive valuation someday um, to the investors who put in that much. Um, so, I mean, um, and, you know, you, you get bigger and you got to hire a lot of people and got to make sure all those people are properly trained and, you know, in, on board with your you know, culture that you want and all that kind of stuff makes it more complicated, I guess, in, in some ways. Um, how did you think of, how did you think about like the uh, what would the right size of funding was for Relay and what you wanted to do? I mean, our goal was to do two things. One was to take the initial clinical to take the initial programs that we've been working on and take them into the clinic and try and show uh, proof of concept data. These are precision medicine programs, and you know, we should be able to get to some uh, very clean data sets rapidly and, and see where what we've got. Our belief is you know, we, we've got something real here. And so that was one half of the strategy. And, and the other half was to be able to scale our research engine, both inside of oncology uh, and then looking at, at other areas inside of precision medicine. And so you're absolutely right. It is a complicated undertaking for a company of our stage, um, but it's exactly what we want to do. We believe that this approach, you know, although early, will be how uh, small molecule drug discovery will get done over the coming decade. If you come at, you know, for 10 years from now, you would imagine every small molecule drug discovery company would have this combination of experimental and uh, computational tools. And so to drive that, uh, we wanted to build uh, the scale. And our belief is the more programs we do, the better we get. Um, but it is complicated as you grow. We've gone from, you know, we're over 100 employees now, trying to keep that magic culture that I saw when I first came in the building, 20 people. You know, when you reach 150 people, is not uh, straightforward. Uh, and to make sure that everyone knows you know, seamlessly what's going on is, is not uh, something that happens automatically. And so that's the job at the moment. And, you know, not having had to kind of be outside raising money over this last 12 months has meant that we've been inside building a company. And, you know, Mark Merko, you know, spends a lot of time with us, you know, talking to us about the early days of Vertex. And they set out to build a company right from the start. Uh, they weren't in it to kind of build and sell. They, they wanted to create something that was enduring. And so we've started to build this company right from the start with that, with that mindset. 
And as it turned out with Vertex, you know, the things that they worked on in the early years weren't actually the things that became the products that, that made the company. <laughs> that, that came later. <laughs> uh, but, they, but, they ha- but they had the company, the people, and the culture in place to seize the opportunity when it came. Yes, and that, I think that's a lesson that's not lost on us, right? Which is we're right at the beginning of this. And success comes in many ways, but you have to be ready to be successful. Um, but it may not be from what you do today. Yeah, and I'll get into some of the technical parts. For, for people uh, listening to this show, I'm going to uh, release a couple articles that were for Timmerman Report subscribers only, in which I get into some more of the, te- the details that uh, led you to your $400 million fundraising. Uh, one of the important ones I remember Alexis Borisy telling me about last year was uh, the, uh, when you showed that the platform could predict um, a number of active binders against a site. That was a, apparently a very difficult target to drug, and you were able to predict with like a high, high degree of confidence, like a lot of active binders. Now, though, that doesn't make them drugs, but um, that was something that um, uh, people uh, had worked very hard on that target for a number of years, and uh, you guys seem to um, be able to um, put uh, save some of that early uh, time um, in, in nominating candidates. Yeah, I mean, there are two things that really struck us. One is the ability to find novel binding sites. Um, and this comes back to working on full-length proteins. Traditional drug discovery works on fragments of proteins, maybe the active site. But actually, you know, because we're looking at the full dynamic range of motion, we, we work on full-length proteins. And so that gives us the opportunity to identify potential novel binding sites that aren't the active sites, so-called allosteric binding sites. And so our ability to find these sites that are hidden in plain sight, you know, not the active site, uh, was something that really struck us as this is really going to change the game. And then, as you say, the second part of it was using some of our computational tools to simulate and then predict um, binders for these sites and to remove all of the labor-intensive piece of the puzzle around going into the lab and synthesizing in the wet lab, going through cycles that would last weeks and months, but to try and cut out a lot of the labor-intensive work by using computational modeling. And then those predictions actually proving out. And so those two things, I think, really started to get us excited about 18 months ago. And that, that's what kind of triggered us to think we, we should really scale this company. And do you think of capital in this case as a competitive moat <laughs> that, that kind of wards off people, maybe discourages others from trying to do exactly what you're doing? Um, uh, also, uh, you know, attracting a lot of bright people early on when you want to hoover up the, the best um, in various disciplines. Um, is that, was that part of the thought process? It's definitely part of it. I think what we do will become industry standard at some point in the future. And so, so exactly as Vertex back in the day, you know, pioneered structure-based drug design, that, that became, you know, standard across many companies in our industry. Um, the, the war for talent is hard, right? Because we're not competing, especially on the computational side with biotech, we're competing with big tech and to them, $400 million is not a lot of money. And so that, that doesn't help us there. What it does help us with is prosecuting more programs and our belief that the more that we can do, uh, the better that we can understand this approach. We're right at the infancy of this. Um, but 
the challenges around recruiting are much broader than than this. This is an industry wide effect that our industry will need a lot more computational talent in it than it currently has today. So you want to get them while you can. Um, so, oh, okay. Um, now, it, just real quick, Sanjeev, um, you're, you're thinking about the new decade like everybody else here, early 2020s. Uh, are, are you able to talk about where you might be with a lead program or when you might enter the clinic? We'll be entering the clinic this year. So uh, the hope is uh, multiple programs that we've been working on will enter the clinic in 2020. And so we'll disclose those over the coming months. Um, but it's a real kind of uh, inflection point for the company. We've gone from this concept three years ago and theoretical um, uh, to real practical. We now have, um, you know, compounds in the clinic. And so so that will be a big milestone for the company. Multiple programs, not one or right. two. Multiple well, so this is going to be a big year. I mean, you've been uh, quite stealthy as a private company, not out there talking a lot. Uh, that, that <laughs> uh, uh, That's going to change at some point. Yes, it right? has to. And we debate all the time internally when when's the right time to do that. And obviously, there's a one side you're trying to protect um, IP. Um, but, you know, r- the right time, um, you know, we will start to, to definitely communicate uh, externally. Well, one thing that I will do, as I said, is I'll um, share a couple of those articles in which I've talked about computational drug discovery as a trend and, and uh, about Relay in particular uh, for, uh, for listeners who want to, uh, to go deeper into the specifics. Uh, but for today, uh, I'd just like to say thank you, Sanjeev, for spending some time with us uh, on the long run. Great. Thanks, Luke. Really enjoyed it. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.